Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right. So I'm excited for this one, man, because like I said, I, I think I've asked you about concurrent training like at least three or four times because it's something that every single time uh, I hear, I haven't directly read a lot of research because I typically turn to the research reviewers like yourself and, and the guys at Mass and Alan Aragon, people like that, and uh, in weightology, which you are uh, a part of as well now, and um, from James Krieger. But a lot of times it's not that promising. It's kind of one of those things where I'm like in my head, theoretically speaking, when, when I do like, when I really think of oxidative and aerobic training, like energy system work, and then I think of building muscle, getting stronger, this will help this. And it, it doesn't make sense why concurrence bad. And then you start digging into literature and every single time they're like, some of them are like, it's a bad idea. Some of them are like, oh, it's kind of neutral, but I wouldn't suggest it. Like it's not going to help. Um, yeah yet like we talked about before this there's all these crossfit games competitors who are just monsters and i fail to understand why they look so jacked and they break all the rules of being a bodybuilder um and i think i mean there's an argument for like symmetry like they're really they wouldn't be good bodybuilders if we really look at it from that perspective mm-hmm. they're definitely jacked we can't we can't get away from that and uh and genetics could play a role like we said drugs could play a role but i'd love to touch on that as you go through this but let's let's get the introduction of this first study and then kind of dive into to your interpretation yeah for sure so um the concurrent training literature has changed quite a bit in the past like eight or nine years i remember i presented on it like in grad school at a couple of fitness conferences and i was like okay you know concurrent training probably not the best um for at least my purposes of hypertrophy. And so over time, kind of depending on the angle you take, right? So if you're solely like looking at hypertrophy versus looking at strength versus looking at endurance, kind of keep that in mind as, a, as we go through this study. Um, so this was a, a relatively shortish study. So it was a nine-week study. They had moderately trained men, um, about 75 kilos. So not too heavy, not too light. Uh, And what they did was they did either resistance training, uh, resistance training plus hit, so hit afterwards, and I'll tell you about the hit in one second, or they did hit and then resistance training. And there was a three and a half hour gap. Now, I have no idea why they use three and a half hours. I'm, I'm still scratching my head. I'm like this, I, okay, three and a half hours, maybe between practices or something, um, I usually recommend like six to eight between sessions if they can. Yeah. So that's normal. Like you would go in, train, maybe do your resistance in the morning and your cardio in the evening. Like that's fairly normal, but three and a half hours. I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand. Um, Anyway. Do you know what, sorry to interrupt. Do you know if the other studies that you and I have discussed and just in general, like from what you know, do you know if they have a longer gap between the the sessions? They do. And so I'm going to kind of touch on that a little bit um, because in, so let me, I'll finish this study up just so you guys can kind of have an idea of mm. where, where we're coming and going. Um, but the, the training for HIT was uh, a two to one ratio. So two minutes of cycling at 90 to 100 RPM uh, and then a minute of rest. So kind of, you know, not standard, I would say, but not terrible. And they did they started at eight rounds, so two to one, eight rounds, and they worked up to like 12 or 13. Uh, so by the end of the study, they're doing, you know, 20 minutes of hit, which is pretty rough, um, especially after resistance training. And the, the resistance training was, it was only three times a week, but it was super duper leg-based. Like they leg pressed every session. They yeah. did extension. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I like leg press, but it was a little much. Um, they did a little bit of upper body, like bench press and, and um, lat pulls and stuff like that. Um, 
but it was like dominant leg workouts. Um, okay, so we got kind of pre or post resistance training plus a nice control group, which is the resistance training group. A lot of people don't have that. Uh, and then they try to make claims based on, you know, concurrent adaptations. And it's hard to, to figure everything out if you don't have a, a decent just resistance training group. Um, so looking at lean mass, which is a surrogate for hypertrophy um, in these people, there was a slight edge, say maybe a 1% edge for the group that did hit after resistance training. Um, and both groups that did hit actually performed better than just um, the resistance training group. So that's kind of like, um, okay, well, you know, they're doing more volume or maybe they were a little less trained at the baseline or something, but there's a slight edge there for hit after training for lean mass. When we look at fat mass, so this comes into people who are maybe prepping, maybe, you know, one of our athletes or one of our clients, right? They're, they're going to be exercising in, in addition to dieting most likely. Um, so what happens with fat mass? Well, the hit after resistance training lost like 10% of their fat mass. Um, the group that did hit before lost like two or 3% and the resistance training group kind of didn't change basically. Um, so after hit after RT is better right now. We'll say for fat mass loss and lean mass gain. We look good. Do you think that they would have seen uh, a favorable difference if if, if the hit was still done after, but it was done three and a half hours after, right? Because we have the just resistant training. We have morning cardio, it sounds like, and then evening training. And then we just have like cardio right after training as like a post-workout finisher, quote unquote. Um, and my thought goes, well, if I did hit this morning, my session tonight would be way worse because I'd just be more fatigued. Like generally just don't feel like doing it as much. Um, but maybe if I did the training in the morning and then I just had to get through cardio at night, it'd be a lot easier. But with that gap, do you think that would change anything or do you think it would probably be about the same as the post-workout? So I think it, it does matter a lot. And there's one study that did a zero, six hour and 24 hour, kind of like a time course study um, and found that people generally perform better the longer between the sessions. Um, and so that's kind of my recommendation is like get as long as you can between the sessions um, but at least do like morning and evening um, kind of to jump right to recommendations. But if you think about all the food you're eating, right in between there, the, you know, just the recovery of like a normal day. Um, and the fact that it's not mentally for me, at least it's not terribly hard to be like, all right, I got to nail this cardio and then I'm done for the day versus yeah. I have to really work myself up for a resistance training like session at night, especially if it's hard, it's like legs or something. Um, so there's, you know, you know, people vary, but there's a factor there too. Got it. Um, okay. So when we look at leg press strength, which you may or may not care about, all of them massively improved. Like I'm talking their one RM went up like, I don't know, 25% or something. It was, which indicates to me that they're not super duper trained. They're kind of like that intermediate trained. Yeah. Um, but no major differences between groups. The hit, both the, the groups that did hit actually performed a little bit better than the, just the RT group. Um, so that's kind of interesting because usually, uh, cardio would kind of hinder your strength a little bit, but yeah. it made it better. Um, and care about endurance, they also measured that. So they measured VO2 peak. And of course, the hit groups did better than the RT group, uh, but there wasn't much of a difference between them because they're you know doing the same amount of volume overall. Um, so that's kind of the summary of the study. Um, again, it was kind of weird with the three and a half hour difference, but um, I think it does fill in that gap maybe where like people have looked at zero, six, and 24. So this kind of fits in between zero and six. And you're like, all right, so now we got some data in this, in this little hole here. Um, but I think in the grand scheme of things, this kind of fits with the literature. There are two meta-analysis that came out, um, I think in 2018, that basically said, you know, if you want to do endurance, 
training first, you'll probably perform better in endurance training. So specificity of, as we've talked about, um, and then if you really want to focus on hypertrophy and strength, you should probably do resistance training first and kind of push away your cardio or do as minimal as possible. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to that. Yeah. Yeah. I got a, a few just follow-up questions. Um, one, you, you noted uh, separate modes targeting the same muscles as much as possible. And in here, are you saying I had a leg session this morning, I should probably do the rower tonight. Because even though your legs are used in the rower, it's predominantly upper body pulling. Um, or if it's an upper body day, I should probably use the assault bike or the sled. Yeah, yeah. So I think the um, kind of fatigue in the muscle matters a lot. Uh, so I would actually take that and, and run with it and say, you know, if you've got a rower, um, do that on uh, lower body days and, and vice versa. Um, just because you're not going to have to worry about any interference effect or, um, you know, any adaptations you're pushing for one direction, kind of countering the other ones. Right. And, and for people listening that would question, well, I do my cardio at night and I lift in the morning. Isn't that the same thing? If you look at the hours between it, it may be, but typically the type of cardio you would want to be doing for this style of hit or really any is, is going to be uh, very way less eccentric loading. So the assault bike, there's virtually no eccentric loading and there's really no compression or tension or pressure on the joint itself. The rower is the same way, sled the same way. It's all concentric, which is going to be less muscle damage, less soreness, probably less joint fatigue as well. So even if you do the rower tonight for your cardio and you have upper body tomorrow, you're probably not going to be hurting from that rower very much compared to uh, uh, doing legs in the morning and then knowing you still have to do the assault bike at night. Like that's not going to be fun. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, and, and you suggest people, obviously you even mentioned like doing hit if possible. Now, where do we draw the line between, cause there's like three categories here. There's, there's the, I want to improve my performance. So maybe hits best. I want to lose fat loss, which maybe hits best sometimes because we know that list is kind of easier to track. And as you diet, you get more fatigue, that hit becomes less effective and more fatiguing. Um, and then the third is like performance, like, and, and if we really look at like ultimate performance, it's going to be all around, you're probably going to want to do some low, moderate and higher intensity aerobic sessions. Um, but you mentioned using hit if possible, why was that your recommendation? And do you think that if doing hit, you're probably going to get all those adaptations, cardiovascular speaking as well, or do you think there's merit in doing multiple modalities? Yeah. So this, this definitely depends on what your ultimate goal is. Right. So like you mentioned, we hit is hard to recover from, especially running like sprints. They're just straight up hard to yeah. recover from. Most people don't even sprint like in general. If you ever take a client, just make them sprint. They're like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I really like doing hit on the, on the bike or the rower or something. Um, but if you're focused on, kind of long-term weight loss and you have a lot of weight to lose and you really just want to keep your muscle as much as you can to look good. Um, you know, it's probably going to be good f to a point until you can't recover and then you'll probably have to switch to kind of bliss or, or miss or something. Um, now, if you're an athlete, right, you, you definitely want to do hit, but you have to include some other aerobic endurance. Otherwise you'll be running for like a mile and be dead. Right. Yeah. So that, that's where that, that comes in a little bit more. Um, and then, you know, I think there are varying shades of that, right? Whatever direction you want to do. If you're a strength athlete, um, you probably want to just stay away from cardio. <laughs> like powerlifters, they just, just stay away from it. Now, do, would you, because the only, the only argument I would uh, give to that or even just ask you on is like, aerobic adaptations typically lead to better oxygen consumption and better recovery. So do you think there's any, so in my mind, I go, well, technically even a lifter or a, a more, more so a bodybuilder, cause you're going to be doing higher volumes and you're going to need to monitor rest periods better. Whereas like powerlifting, you're just coming and benching, like who gives a shit how long you rest, <laughs> but, um, and you're only doing a few reps. You don't really need to be very conditioned to do a few reps, but in a bodybuilder standpoint, do you think there is value in that? Because it may help improve. I mean, just how fast you recover between, reps between sets between sessions um so if you look at so this is kind of like one of those debatable things in the science but if you think about the adaptations that occur with resistance training like angiogenesis uh, fiber type switches um oxygen delivery kind of clearance of 
um, all kind of debris and uh, you know, superoxide and stuff like that. Um, you get most of those adaptations just from training. So I don't think that you need, um, especially for bodybuilding, to do anything more than physical activity, you know. Um, that could be walking or, you know, moderate walking if you want, but there's, the, I don't think there's a good physiological reason unless you're get, like just gassed. Like if you go into your workouts and you're just gassed, then yeah, you probably need to pick it up a little bit. Um, but you get most of the good adaptations that you want just from resistance training. Got it. Okay. Um, and, and if, so I guess it kind of, kind of comes down to like, if somebody's goal is just fat loss, it's kind of like one of those things, like we use cardio if we think you'd adhere better to that than pulling your calories. Otherwise, there's really no use of it, right? I mean, there's burning calories, so obviously, but that's even why like neat is really important because like, okay, I could say 30 minutes of walking or I can just up your step count and you're going to have to get the walks in at some point and they're going to add up to an accumulation of the same exact caloric expenditure. Um, but if somebody has performance uh, as their main goal or even like myself, I, I mean, my main goal is definitely to look jacked, but I really enjoy being like an athlete, quote unquote. And I feel more like an athlete when I do all these things. Like when I just bodybuild, I don't feel as athletic, even if I look better. <laughs> so um, for me, like the way I've always kind of structured that, and I want to get your opinion on it is if I'm like for right, right now, for example, I'm lifting four days a week, my post, my, my hit cardio sessions or like higher intensity conditioning is always at the end of a lifting day, um, which is obviously backed by the study. And then my days in between are, uh, more aerobic based. So one day I'm doing, uh, like just 30 minutes nonstop one day. It's like a, it's kind of like a circuit. So I go for, it, it accumulates over time, like how much duration I'm doing, but five minutes on the rower, take a two minute break, five minutes on the uh, the runner, two minute break, five minutes on the sled nonstop, two minute break, five minutes on the assault bike, two minute breaks. It's only 20 minutes total, um, but it's still at a moderately like sustainable pace, you know? Um, yeah. But my reasoning wasn't because that was going to burn more calories. It was because A, I need to, be, I want to be well-rounded and B, mm -hmm. my thought was hit is way more fatiguing to your nervous system but so is strength training. And they're both kind of using the same energy systems. If we look at ATP, the anaerobic, like glycolysis, so on and so forth. So why not pair that with that just to manage my fatigue better? Because now when I go in on a Wednesday, I just have aerobic fitness. I'm going to be able to recover better for Thursday when I'm lifting and doing hit again. Does that, does that sound sound? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, so like you mentioned, it's kind of the reason we want to do hit like in general is because it's very similar to typical resistance training. Now what your aerobic like activity, because it's not like long distance running, it's not like super um, hard, I would say, you know, you have rest built in, you're kind of doing a little bit of everything. Uh, you it's, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily helping your recovery. It might help your like mobility and your like psychological self uh, and you burn calories too, but it's probably not hurting you. Yeah. Right. And there's not any studies that have done kind of both, right? So if you, if you did exactly what you said, like that would be a cool study to say, all right, well, I just like working out, right? I like being fit. I like being able to, you know, play with my kids and do lateral movements and, and do all kinds of stuff. Like I just want to do it all. Um, so there's not any great studies that have done that aspect, um, which could be interesting for the future. Yeah. I'm I'm putting this out into the universe now. At some point, Tailored Coaching Method will fund a cool study to do with you because I feel like I have to – that's like a bucket list thing for me. You know, like originally I actually had uh, like a legit bucket list thing of like things I wanted to do, and one of them was be in a study, and like I wanted to be like a study participant. But now that I'm a dad, I'm married, I have business, I'm like, I don't know if I want to be in a study anymore. I think – I would much rather just fund it and observe <laughs> than, yeah. than actually be in the study. Um, but okay. I think that's, uh, I mean, that's a pretty well-rounded uh, thing. I mean, at the end of the day, like I think the biggest take home for people who want to lose fat is doing whatever is going to manage fatigue best, but hit afterwards is probably going to maintain muscle better than spreading them out or doing hit in the morning because performance will drop in the afternoon. Um, is that a fair assumption? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty straightforward. And you know, it, we, I don't know how many endurance athletes we have, but for them, it would be the opposite. Right. So like you would want to focus on your endurance more. 
Yeah. So basically, whatever is your priority, like that's what yeah. you're doing more of. Yeah. Um, and we do. We have a lot of people that uh, that like endurance way more than strength training. However, mm-hmm. they think that strength training is going to help them, which I agree with for their aesthetic goals because they come and they're like, okay, well, I'm in a place where I want to really, I really want to look better, but I love running six miles a day. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> we might have to cut <laughs> some of that out. Um, but the, the million dollar question to wrap this up is uh, why are CrossFitters so jacked? Give us your explanation. Oh man. So I, I don't have an awesome explanation. Um, I think the ones that you see like at the games and stuff, are so there's an underlying genetic component of like i can just recover really well like you've seen those people who could just work out and they're fine and even with age they like the recovery doesn't drop off so they're able to do just more of everything um they you know a lot of those people that's that's their job or that's what they do in their spare time like that that's their life right so that's their hobby so you can kind of optimize everything around it um, and there's always the drug side, but they're also very lean. <laughs> and when you're lean, you look jacked most of the time. So having extra body fat in a CrossFit competition where you're doing body weight movements, right? You want to be lean. Um, yeah. so I think it's, it's a couple of those components kind of combined because like if, as you're saying before, when you cut and you look jacked, like you have the same amount of muscle, it just shows more. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very true. And I think that, you know, like obviously they're burning so many calories. So that's going to help them be lean. But if you even look back at like some of the top CrossFitters, if like I encourage people who always ask this question, look back at them five to 10 years ago when they first started CrossFit, they were not that jacked at all. So part of it is like, Hey, like they've just like, it's the adaptation process of years of doing that much training Mm-hmm. while having the genetics to be able to recover from it. And most of those people aren't in a deficit either. So they weren't super lean to start because they didn't diet down. It's just after years, they got super lean. And now that's their set point because their body had to adapt to be able to do what they do. Um, and they're kind of the people that could hang. Um, and a good example of that is like, even like basketball players, right? Like y- you can be an amazing basketball player, but if you're not at least like six, five, you're the, you're really unlikely to get into the, the NBA. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. the average height is seven foot or higher. Like what? That's huge. Like if you ever <laughs> run it, I ran into Lamar Odom one time uh, waiting for an Uber at the Los Angeles mall. And I didn't say anything to him because I was kind of like starstruck. And he gave me that look like, dude, come on. Like I'm not in the mood to talk to a fan. And so I just didn't say anything. Uh, but I also don't watch basketball. So I really was like trying to pinpoint like, who is this guy? But he was so tall. Like, so, and he's not abnormal in the NBA. Like he's like an average size, but he was so tall. It was like, I saw an alien. Like it was <laughs> unbelievable. And I was like looking straight up. It's just crazy, but that's the average height. So like, it just goes to show like in every sport, realistically, um, you, you somewhat have to be genetically gifted. I think baseball is probably the most, uh, level playing field sport there is for genetics. Um, yeah, that's fair because there's a lot more skill involved like to get to the top versus genetics. Like you have to have skill to be pro at anything, but you have to have genetics to get there too. It's even like, I would even argue that the best natural bodybuilders are always going to be the most genetically gifted too. doesn't mean they're not as intelligent as the other ones. doesn't mean they don't work as hard because they do and they are smart and they maybe have committed just as much time, but they also have genetics on their side. So their symmetry is great. They're just, they're just going to be in that position. And that actually goes for non-natural bodybuilders as well. It's just, it's something we can't get away from, you know? Yeah. It sucks, but it's the truth. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have to tell people. I'm like, but sorry, I, man, you pick, pick the wrong parents. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what can I do? Uh, pick me parents, which you can't. <laughs> so you're shit out of luck. But I, th- but I think too, like it, just for people listening, I don't want to uh, like shit on your hopes and dreams and say that <laughs> like it's useless um, because you still can build a pretty pre- impressive physique without great genetics. I definitely do not have great genetics. Um, but after 10 years of training consistently and, and, you know, having diet phases built into where I like, I can like see what I look like when I get lean every once in a while, I can say that I, I am very pleased with my physique. It took me twice as long as maybe somebody with genetics, but it's still something you can get to. And I think like the average person is so out of shape. They really don't have to be that crazy to look really good. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, and realistically we're not 
I don't know about you, but I wear a shirt 99% of the time. So it's really like, I'm yeah, much definitely. more concerned about looking good with a shirt on than not. Um, but that's the last thing I'll say. I, I think that's a good explanation. I think uh, for me, like the whole CrossFit's question is always like, there's the genetics component is huge, but I like your, your uh, reasoning of like the ability to recover at a higher level. I think that's important. Um, I, I always tell people like, realistically, there's a ton of volume on both cardio and training. So they're going to build muscle and they're going to burn fat. It's, 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 and it's not necessarily recomp because it might not be happening simultaneously, but after 10 years of doing it, it's kind of like a massive recomp. Um, and the yeah. most important thing is they commit their life to it. It's just like a, the top level natural bodybuilders, they commit their life to it. Like their life revolves around that sport, which is fine, but that's what it takes to, to get to that level. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. Let's kick it to uh, metabolic so, adaptation. This is going to be a popular one. Yeah. So actually, this might be one of my favorite research roundups we ever do because I love concurrent training. But over the past, I don't know, month, maybe two months, I've really been digging into metabolic adaptation. And I think my mind has changed a little bit, which oh. is always, always fun. Um, so to kind of just, this is a very, very simple study. Um, so I'll just cover it first, then we can kind of talk about everything else. But what these researchers did, and I actually know all of them personally, they're really good people, a um, little bit of bias, but that's okay. Everybody has one. But what they did was they reanalyzed some old data. And this was a study from two clinical trials done back in the early 2000s. So you're talking like 15 years ago. And they had cool names. So they're called Romeo and Juliet. Researchers love to name their trials. I don't, it's just something that you do. Kind of make something fun about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in Romeo, it was just a straight diet, like weight loss study. Um, they recruited overweight slash obese um, participants, mostly female. Um, and they put them on an 800 calorie diet. And they said, we want you to get normal BMI. However long that takes, you know, get your BMI to normal so you can be healthy, right? So public health standards, right? Um, and they didn't have many calories, so 800 isn't much. I had a fair macronutrient distribution. Okay, so that's study number one. That's completely one study. The next study, so Juliet, had three components. They had a resistance training arm that trained three times a week, a endurance arm that did aerobic training three times a week, and then they had a diet arm. So the same thing as Romeo. So same diet. Um, so those are the two underlying studies. And what the researchers in the current study did was they kind of combined their data and they looked at right after weight loss, what happened to their body comp and their metabolic rate. Okay. Well, as you can imagine, they lost weight. Um, and they actually maintained most of their fat-free mass, uh, which is very, very rare. Um, so I don't know if that's a component of you know, having that one arm of the basically four that was doing resistance training, kind of pulling everything up, or if these people were just kind of special. Um, because the average, it could also be an, like an average weight loss time because they dieted over basically half a year. So very long, like six month diets, basically. Um, okay. So they lot lost some fat mass, a bunch of fat mass, didn't really lose much fat free mass. And then they measured metabolic rates. So they did it at baseline after weight loss and four weeks after weight loss. So they're like at maintenance for four weeks, which is a long time to be at maintenance. Uh, they did a one-year follow-up and a two-year follow-up. And basically what they found was right after weight loss or four weeks after, their resting metabolic rate was about 50 calories lower than it should be based on formulas. Uh, but by a year, it was like, 20 calories less than it should be and by two years it's kind of like 20 calories or so less than it should be um so that's the the, the, the take home of the study was hey metabolic adaptation exists up to four weeks after weight loss but not statistically speaking at one year or two years that's a very very small amount after one or two years yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think and were they lighter? I mean, they were, they weighed less, right? Well, <laughs> or did they gain their weight back? They gained their weight back. That's yeah. the, the, the interesting thing about all of these weight loss studies and the follow-ups is like, if you look at the follow-ups, 
80% of the people will yeah. gain almost all the weight back. And then, so you're like, okay, well, their metabolic rate's higher, so they must not be metabolically adaptive. Well, it's like, well, they actually just weigh the same they did yeah. at baseline. So, well, which is actually kind of good because then it, it shows you like actual uh, data of metabolic adaptation because if they were 30 pounds lighter, yeah, of course there would be a metabolic adaptation because you're just less, you don't need as much calories to survive and move. Um, so that actually kind of controls it really well. Uh, but I think it's also important for people to take note on that because there's so many times studies come out and they give you some information and people glorify them and you're like, this is the best route for fat loss because of this. Well, let's follow up with them and see if they gain weight or not, because I don't know what, I can't remember what the statistics are, but I think it is like 80% or something gain all the way back and then like a third of that 80 percent actually gains more than what they originally started at or something which is nuts it's insane um but yeah. it's, it's good for people to know like you have to consider the long-term sustainable route because it's the only way you're going to maintain it off you know mm -hmm. and i was so i was talking with our coaches for the the con ed like last week or so and i was and i asked them what's an indirect benefit for just dieting for like six months like if you're just like with what with us getting coached for six months what's like something indirect other than weight loss and it's like well your behaviors are going to change right your food choices are going to change like those habits are going to be ingrained so sometimes you know dieting for a long time may suck but if you're changing those underlying habits it's probably for the best yeah it, it, i i hate saying this because it sounds so like hardcore but it's very true like embrace the suck because if you can do yeah. that, that's where you really do. You build grit, you build self-discipline, you build character, you build work ethic. Um, and, and all the reasons why people struggle to maintain weight loss are because they don't have those things that you will gain when you go through like a really, I don't even say like a really long diet, but just like a good length diet period. Mm -hmm. um, and I get that question all the time when I'm talking to people who are going to come on board with us. And they're like, well, I know you have a three month commitment, but like, what do you recommend? And I'm like, usually it's somewhere between six to nine months for everybody, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, like that allows us to most likely get you to where you want to be, because that's enough time to lose the weight you want to lose. Um, it's enough time for us to prepare you to lose that weight. So before we dive into the diet, we can have some time with you. And then it's enough time to help you recover and learn from that diet so you can sustain it. Um, but a lot of people don't want to commit seven, six to nine months. And I, and I wrote that thing, this post one time, and it talks about um, the average human lifespan is 79 uh, years. So if you spend nine months dieting, it's actually literally less than 1% of your life. Nice. Or it's exactly 1% <laughs> or something like that, which is like just spend 1% of your lifetime learning how to diet properly. That's yeah. not that big of an ask, you know? especially versus like three crash diets and skinny wraps and all this other stuff. Exactly. Um, yeah. The money. Um, w was there anything else that you wanted to point out on this study about besides that metabolic adaptation might not be as serious as people make it seem? Yeah. So I do want to kind of bring up, there's, there's two sides to this um, debate and the researchers are like, they both have really good points. Um, but these researchers specifically always look at resting metabolic rate. And as I think I'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts and we have, that's only 60 to 70% of your total daily energy expenditure. And a, a smaller component, but a probably more important component is meat, which seems to drop off like a rock. Like most studies that measure all components of energy expenditure, like they, they see, you know, 150 to 150 calories and just mess resting metabolic rate while you're dieting. Um, some are a little more extreme and it seems like the more weight you lose, the more extreme it gets. Uh, so if you look at some of the, like, did you ever watch the biggest loser? I like, mm -hmm. I like to bring this up. Yeah. So if you look at some of those studies where they lo losing like you know, 50 to hundred pounds, they have massive metabolic adaptation, like 200 to 400 calories or something. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we need to keep in mind when we're looking at metabolic adaptation studies, what they, they measured, uh, because this study, it's like, Oh, you know, 50 calories a day, it would take me four years to put on 20 pounds or something, which is a long time. But if they counted, let's say 300 calories a day in meat drop, because again, these people in these studies are overweight or obese, 
not exercise, probably haven't really exercised in their lives, <clears throat> they get tired, mm -hmm. right? You put somebody on an 800 calorie diet or a 1200 or 60, even 1600 calorie diet, like fatigue just sets in and they just stop moving, especially after three months or so. Yeah. Um, so I think that's when people talk about metabolic adaptation, there are lots of components to keep in mind. Um, and even the researchers will like, they'll like talk past each other. It's, it's this really weird thing. So I'm like, you guys are both saying like the same ish thing. You're just saying it differently. Yeah. Like, no, no, we're saying it differently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay, guys. Uh, so yeah. a, a few things to point out on that. Um, first one, I don't know if you knew this, but I was almost on The Biggest Loser. This last one that just said that Steve Cook was the coach. Oh, snap. I was in the, the interviewee process with wow. a few other people. I know Brian DaCosta was on there. Uh, obviously, Steve Cook won, and I can't be surprised. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I got a couple of interviews and stuff like that to, to try to go for it um, because they were doing like more of a holistic approach this year, and, which I thought was cool. So I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd be down. Um, another thing to think about is like you mentioned, like, oh, it would take me 20 years or five years or whatever it was to, to gain that weight mm -hmm. for a lot of people listening. Like you got to remember, like as much as brand kind of brushed over that and was like, it, it, that is a ridiculous. So it would take you a long time to get that. But there's a lot of people who graduate college and they're like, all right, I'm going to, you know, get to work. Their neat goes down because they go from being at college, walking to class, going to parties, having fun, shooting hoops, um, having a structured eating time because they have classes to mm -hmm. working, grazing, not moving as much, and they're eating a little bit more. So maybe it's a hundred calories more than they're used to. Not a lot. You're not going to gain weight right away, but if yeah. you go right into the workplace and you spend from age 20 till 26 doing that, you're going to wake up one day and be like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what happened. You know? And when you're like, okay, I want to lose this weight. And this goes back to the time thing. I want to lose this weight three months. Okay. Well you gained it in six. Do you think it's really just going to be gone in three? Like give me some time um, yeah. just to put things in perspective for people. And then the third thing I want to point out is, and this is just my perspective from listening to you, asking you questions, um, working with tons of people, reading as much as I can. Every time somebody talks like uh, from a scientific perspective, like reviewing some kind of research on metabolic adaptation, I immediately dive into it uh, because we get that question all the time. And it's, it's probably one of the most applicable things for me as a fat loss coach to help people with, um, especially when we first thought it was like such a big scare. But the more and more I read and even listening to you today is the more and more I realize that it's far less permanent than people made it believe or what people thought it was at the beginning when studies started coming out. Um, and we're realizing more and more that it is something that's just a temporary part of dieting that you can't get away from. And if you look at anecdotal experiences of bodybuilders, I mean, you should be able to point that out, you know, like as they diet, their body adapts, they have to eat less and less and less. They get more and more tired and they have less and less libido because testosterone is dropping. They're more and more stressed because cortisol is increasing. So yeah, those things happen, but then they go in off season. They're fine. Like it goes back, like, you know, and I think people, it, it's hard for me because I try to explain this to people, but I'm like, just remember that for them, it's actually much, much more severe because they get so lean. So there are some people that even have approached me and I've helped the coaches with this that are like, well, I'm really worried about metabolic adaptation. I'm like, Hey, you have 50 pounds to lose. You have no worries at all. Like you can get really lean and you'll never have to worry about it. Like we'll just barely reverse you out and you'll be fine. Like, just trust me, like stick to the habits be patient. Um, because unless you're getting at least to photo shoot lean, I'd say you really don't have to worry about metabolic adaptation as much unless you are a, and this is the last thing I'll say in, in my experience, unless you are a female who diets the improper way with also some binges and just has like a lot of stress, maybe hormonal issues. Um, and I don't see this as much as in men. That's why I'm saying females, but, um, mm -hmm. there, there are, is the rare case where, this kind of stuff happens and you're not at that level of leanness. But for most people, I would say you gotta get really lean for this to be a serious thing. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can find it. So if you just, so, um, so you have to lose, so there's a, there's a couple of studies that indicate you need to lose like more than 10% of your weight. But once you hit 10%, there's like a threshold. So um, metabolic adaptation will account for, you know, hundred to, 200 calories, whatever, um, up to 10%. And then it kind of just stops and you don't get it any worse. So like if you have a 200 pound guy and he's like, I just want to lose 20 pounds. Like once he loses 20 pounds, it's not going to get any worse. Mm. Right. 
So that's most people want to lose somewhere probably between 10 and 30 pounds. Um, so it's not a, it's definitely not a big factor you, and you definitely can't stop it. Um, so you, you can't really do anything about it. I did want to add some science to what you're saying earlier about, um, kind of the going up and down with food and weight gain and weight loss and kind of that, that component. Cause there, there are two studies that have done that. They're like, all right, we want you to gain 10% of your weight, or we want to overfeed you like 50%. So you gain a bunch of weight. Right. And what happens is like, you can have people gain weight for two weeks or four weeks or six weeks, and then their metabolic rate will increase. So it's like a, it's a metabolic adaptation in a good way, unless you're trying to, to bulk. Uh, and then you take them back and you drop them back down and their metabolic rate decreases. So it's very plastic, right? So you can um, kind of adapt it with your needs uh, to an extent. So I would, again, basically backing up what you're saying is I, it's not something you need to worry about. Do you think that gives value to diet breaks from a metabolic standpoint? If the diet breaks are done in a standpoint of, I think longer durations on both ends, meaning like you got to be in deficit for a little bit longer than a week, you know, like be in there for a few weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and then spend two weeks at a diet break versus two days. Yeah. So I've been looking through, I like just finished up a bunch of infographs on diet breaks and refeeds. Um, so good timing, but people have tried everything from like one on one off to five weeks of a diet, five weeks off. And the only thing that's really worked um, is so the Matador study, which did two weeks on two weeks off and they kind of, kind of attenuated or, you know, prevented some of the metabolic adaptation, but it wasn't like a whole lot. Um, so I think what diet breaks allow you to do, and this is probably where my opinion has changed is kind of revert back to normal, more baseline. So, you know, you feel better, you move more, you get rid of some of that metabolic adaptation. Cause I said, it's transient. So all this, the metabolic adaptation you had while you're dieting race basically goes away. Now it'll come back when you diet again. Um, but you can kind of push it off for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's where I think diet breaks come in and yeah, like two weeks is, seems to be good. I think three weeks is probably the sweet spot, but nobody's done that study yet. Um, but also three weeks of dieting or five weeks of dieting and three weeks off is just, you just extending your diet like so yeah. far. Yeah. I, I typically, I find that I use uh, three to four weeks on one to two weeks off more than anything else. Um, I think two and two is just too long for people. Cause same thing. It's like a 16 week diet goes to 32 weeks, you know, but yeah. I think that um, three weeks on one week off or three weeks on two weeks off is really great. And I always look at it like this too. Obviously there's a big psychological factor, but I always tell people like, imagine if you had to work seven days a week. And then every third month I'd give you all those weekends back. So you'd get like 14 days in a row or something, mm -hmm. right? Those two months of working seven days a week are going to suck so bad that you're going to dread getting back into it, you know, like, mm -hmm. but if you have a weekend or even just a Saturday, like for me, it's like Saturday and like half a Sunday. Cause I t typically, I can't stay away from work that long. So I typically do a little bit of stuff on Sundays, yeah. but if I didn't have that Saturday to do nothing and not check my email, oh my God, I'd go crazy because I can't just work, work, work. So it's, it's very much in the same line and that's very psychological. Obviously there's, there's physiological things that happen because the psychology, psychological stress over time accumulated. But um, no, I think that's, I think that's a good way to, to look at it. And, and um, I'm still in favor. I think there's some people coming out now saying that diet breaks are useless, but I'm still, a fan and in favor of them from a practical standpoint, they just work. They work with my clients so well. Yeah. And I, I think I am way more in favor of diet breaks than refeeds for people who aren't like physique athletes. Yeah. Uh, so. Like refeeds just, they just don't seem to do anything great for normal people. Uh, I've even noticed that they encourage hunger the next day, you know, cause like you have a refeed, like you're hungry the next day. So sometimes it like screws up a few days of dieting because of a refeed, but with a physique athlete, they usually have the self-discipline to not cave into mm -hmm. those cravings the next day. And it, the purpose is the, you get a nasty pump after a refeed day when you're on a diet. <laughs> yeah. Like, like yeah, in, in back in the sure. day, I remember having like, it was basically like my refeed days. Like this is literal instructions from my coach. They had to be pancakes. Like 
it had to be pancakes, which I wasn't okay. mad about, but yeah. pancakes with, uh, I can't believe it's not butter spray and sugar-free uh, syrup. And it was like, I look forward to that day. And then the workout, like I'd plan the perfect workout to fall right after a diet or a refeed. Um, I used to love that. Just honestly, like I almost miss thinking they were so much more important than they are because it was just yeah. such a cool experience thinking that they were doing this magical thing, you know? Man. Yeah. I, so I feel that way about like pre-workout sometimes. I'm like, yeah. I'll get a pre-workout just, just because I want to like feel excited again. Right. I don't need it. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I get in the gym I'm like, man, I know this isn't doing. This is <laughs> so <laughs> but I, but whatever. That's actually why um, a shameless plug for Legion, but that's actually why I like their uh, non-stimulant pre-workout because oh, nice. it has uh, citrulline. I want to say it has, uh, I know it has beta alanine, um, but I want to say it has, what is it? Uh, betaine in it. Um, it mm-hmm. has some other stuff in there. And so the stuff that I'm like, oh, you know, citrulline, like there's some good evidence to prove that that'll be helpful. I'm not going to feel it instantly and, you know, um, yeah. but then I'm also not jacked up on caffeine. So it's kind of nice, like, cause I drink enough rock stars throughout the day. So it's like, let me just, just have that. Um, yeah. But the, the last thing I want to say about the diet breaks too, uh, while it's on my mind is that I think that, uh, and I'll, it's more of a question, I guess, but when you take a diet break, the part, so metabolic adaptation, I kind of look at it like this umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. Metabolic adaptation is this thing, but then there's muscle loss, there's neat, there's your, your RMR and BMR. There's all these different little things, right? Thermic effect of food, like all these things kind of fall underneath it, hormonal regulation, they kind of just start to slowly downregulate. And that's like this overarching theme of metabolic adaptation. Well, part of that is muscle loss, right? So Mm -hmm. with a diet break, you're potentially losing uh, less muscle, retaining more lean mass throughout a long-term diet because you have more time spent out of the diet. You have better training sessions, better recovery, uh, more nutrition for the muscle to grow um, or rebuild, would you say that that could in itself be one of the reasons why it could potentially attenuate metabolic adaptation is just from that standpoint or even why they're just useful, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Like if you, uh, fat free mass or muscle mass is basically like 70% of RMR. So if you can get a little bit or just not lose some, like it'll add up over time for sure. Especially like the next time you diet, right? If you think about competitors or even just like normal people who yo-yo diet like if you lost five percent of your lean mass every time you dieted like each time you would just be gaining more fat to get back to normal and so you would have to try harder so anything that can work uh, like against that and help you keep muscles is good really good well and that's just another uh a, a good way of suggesting like we usually run this with women more than men obviously but um why you should be strength training more yeah you know like uh, at least three days a week i think you should be lifting weights because you know i have some clients that like legit do like we call them lean gaining phases but basically like a bulk like you're not in a deficit you're just above maintenance and you're literally just trying to build muscle for six months you're lifting five days a week um then we'll do a cut and i'll have other women be like i I, want to achieve that i want to look like that and then i'm like okay like i want to tell you what they did they tried (laughs) really hard to build muscle for a long time and then they diet it, you know, and, and people yeah. fail to understand that even because unless you're taking some kind of uh, performance enhancement drug, you are not going to grow that quick, especially as a female, it's just not going to happen. So if this can help the diet phase, like just do it for that standpoint, like just do it because it's going to help you get leaner um, and not end up skinny fat. Cause a lot of times that happens too, where it's like, I lost this weight that actually happened to me. I lost the weight at the beginning when I first got into this like 11 years ago. I lost a bunch of weight just doing cardio and dieting. And I was like, why do I look pathetic? Like I thought I was going to look jacked. Yeah. Like what's going on here? And I had to like study strength training. I changed my degree. And then I was like, ah, muscle. That's something different. Let me build that. Um, but it's, yeah. it's a good thing for people to hear, especially from a scientist like yourself. Cause then it's a little bit more legit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, you know, we, we cover, you know, the podcast, we cover a lot of different stuff, but all of the studies and stuff are like hyperlinked in the research roundup. So like, if you really wanted to dig into either of these topics, you could go in and just like click and read and click and read, right? Because there are a lot of nuances that, you know, we would be here for like hours to talk about. Um, so I did, I guess, just want to remind people that, you know, check out the research roundup as you're listening or before or after. 
I was trying to like look to see how many links you put in this one, but I don't, there's no way to tally it that I'm aware of, but there's a lot of links in here. Like I'm scrolling yeah. through it. There's quite it's a probably bit. Probably not great for SEO, but you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Do it for the science. <laughs> SEO is weird, man. There's like a fine balance for links, you know, like okay. there's like a certain number of links that are like super helpful. And if you don't get that mount, it's going to knock you down. But if you overuse links, then it's like an issue too. But I think that number is pretty damn high. Okay. Cause I, I, I worry a little bit. Yeah. No, cause I review every blog goes on the website to make sure SEO is polished. Um, and I, and I, I don't think there's ever been a point where I've noticed it, uh, like trigger bad SEO. So you're fine. Nice. Um, but I appreciate you thinking about that because that's important. That's for a lot, like for all the trainers and coaches listening, this is why you should have a blog. I know Instagram is much cooler, but blogging um, and videos are going to help you SEO way more because Google owns that. Google owns the internet basically. So if they're going to search anything and you want to be discovered, you better have a blog. Um, and I think okay. blogging is like a lost art form in business. I hate it. It drives me crazy because that's what I started with and I love it. And it's, I talk to other business professionals who are very successful and like their first recommendation is always like, oh, you should have a website with like a really good blog and SEO skills. And it's like, wait, what? It's not, <laughs> it's not Instagram. <laughs> it's like, no. yeah, that, that, uh, that plays to my strength. So I'll, I'll accept it um, too, you know? Yep. Exactly. I'd, I'd rather write. I mean, I like podcasts a lot uh, too, but yeah. I would rather write. I can think better. Well, the good thing is now Google has a podcasting uh, platform and I'm, hoping that it grows because we're i mean we're on spotify we're on uh google podcasts i don't I'm not, i don't think it's called google play i can't remember what it's called though uh itunes stitcher we're even on amazon now Ooh. amazon has a podcasting platform apparently um and i'm just like i we got to be everywhere that's my whole goal but um hopefully that'll help because right now you don't get much seo points from podcasting maybe a little bit um but darn, darn. yeah do you have any final notes on either of these studies before we uh, call it good? I feel like we went over quite a bit and I think I asked some good questions that are applicable to the clients. Yeah. Um, so I think that you know, pretty much covers everything. Um, yeah. So I don't have anything to add. Just if, if you guys have any listeners, if you have any questions, just hit me up, DM me or something. Perfect. Uh, and remember guys, there is a link in the show notes. It says, ask boom, boom, a question. You can also put any, uh, research topics that you want us to dive into on these that we do once a month, um, or any questions as a follow-up to this. Um, and we can always bring Brandon on to answer those specifically. So, uh, let us know if you have anything, otherwise we will catch you next time. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more again to get you better results. The second thing, Head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.